Good morning, Petaluma. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, streaming live on kpca.fm. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the rabbi of the Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma, and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council, our bi-weekly program in which we get to meet people from our community who make a difference in our community's life and in the life's lives of individuals. I get to read a little station announcement before we begin today. A new one-of-a-kind comedy show is coming to Petaluma this winter. On Friday, January 18th, I guess that's tomorrow, Join KPCA for a special presentation of the Crossword Show with Zach Sherwin. This one-of-a-kind show pits comedians against an interactive crossword puzzle hosted by epic rap battle Zach Sherwin and will feature guest solvers Francesca Florentini, Bethany Van Delft, and Natasha Muse. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. and the show starts at 7. Drinks will be made available by sponsors Barrel Brothers Brewing and Revive Kombucha, and all of our proceeds will benefit KPCA, Petaluma's free-range radio station. Tickets are $15 in advance or $20 day of. For more information and tickets, visit www.blondemedicine.com. I hope many of you can make the program. So, this uh, our program for this week uh, during our second segment, we'll be meeting uh, Faith Ross and Naomi Crawford, uh, activists in our community, to talk about some upcoming events and women's rights and inclusivity in Petaluma. And here in our first segment, I want to welcome to the studio Kelly Bass-Seibel, who uh, is the Business uh, Development and Partnership Director at the Petaluma Health Center. Welcome to the studio. Good morning, Rabbi Zed. It's great to have you here, and uh, the Petaluma Health Center certainly has come a long way over the past number of years. Uh, before we get delve into the health center, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to this position, and hopefully why you like what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I do like what I'm doing. Um, so I have been at the Petaluma Health Center for about two and a half years. Um, but I've been a Petaluma resident for 10 years this year, so in most, you know, for most people, that's new to town. Um, and prior to being at the health center, I worked for the Santa Rosa Metro Chamber for uh, nine years and have spent the majority of my career in nonprofit management. Um, at the Santa Rosa Chamber, I managed our advocacy and public policy, and I also got to manage our workforce development programs. Oh, so though, education-wise, what did you do? I so I found my way to Sonoma County because I am a graduate of Sonoma State University. Uh-huh. I grew up in Southern California and came up here to go to school and fell in love and never left. Wow, that's a great work for the Chamber of Commerce too. I worked for the Chamber <laughs> after I graduated. Yeah, in Indian Town. Um, I love you know I love this community and I love what we do and um, you know this is a beautiful place to live. So. I'm very fortunate that I found my way here. And we're fortunate to have you doing what you do and coming here today to talk about this jewel that's part of our Petaluma community and the health center. So what is a health center as opposed to a hospital and a doctor's office and 
the Kaiser system. What is the health center? Sure. So we're, um, the Petaluma Health Center is what we call an FQHC, which is a federally qualified health center. And there are about 1,500 FQHCs in the country. And we differ from uh, primary care, you know, doctor's office, or from a hospital in that we're not a hospital. We provide primary care, but we're not a regular doctor's office because we have a strict set of requirements um, from the federal government that allows us to see anybody who walks in our doors. So we don't deny access to care regardless of ability to pay. We're also the health care provider um, in our community for most of our Medi-Cal patients. And um, 22% of our patients are uninsured. Mm. Uh, we also, what makes us different than a lot of the other uh, primary care providers is in the communities that 85% of our um, patient population is living at 200% of the federally federal poverty guidelines or lower. So what that means, if you're a family of four, you're making less than $50,000 a year. And in our community, we know that's a very tight budget to live on. Uh, so uh, there's this, and is the branch here in Petaluma or the main office, mm-hmm. I should say, the main wonderful building mm-hmm. facility that I had the opportunity to see the other day. Um, are there other branches of the health center? There are. So we have seven sites, uh, mm-hmm. the Petaluma Health Center being the main site, and that's the one that most people are familiar with. It's on McDowell, and it's a, you know one-block building, so it's pretty large. We also have the Roanoke Park Health Center, uh, which opened in 2014, and it's serving patients in Roanoke Park in uh, southern Santa Rosa. And then in town, we also have a site at Casa Grande High School, uh, a site at San Antonio High School. We provide the medical care at Cots at the Mary Isaac Shelter. Uh, we have a provider one day a week at the Petaluma campus of the junior college. And then we also run the Vision Center at the Walmart in Roanoke Park. And you have a new program. We do. That's in, that's in motion. <laughs> it's in motion. It's coming. Um, so we were fortunate enough to receive a $300,000 investment from the John Jordan Foundation to purchase a mobile dental van, but it's going to be the size of a bus. So starting this next school year uh, around town, you're going to see this beautiful bus driving around and providing dental care at school sites for our kids. Wow. wow. Yeah, dental care is always a... Um uh, for many families, it ends up at the bottom of the care list. Obviously, emergency needs and immediate medical needs are taken, may be taken care of, but dental care often slips. So that's a great, great program to have here in Petaluma. We're really lucky that this is coming our way. We are. We know that one of the bas- biggest reasons that kids miss school is because of tooth pain, particularly in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, we also know that preventative dental care will save anywhere from um, 8 to $50, uh, you know, return on investment later in life for preventative and emergency care. Um, and we know that a lot of times for our patients, when you think about our patient population, for them to be able to bring in a child for just a regular dental checkup, it could mean taking time off work, which could be lost wages. It becomes really challenging for our families. So if we can meet those kids where they already are in school, then we can provide that preventative care up front, and we're able to provide, with this van, we're going to be able to provide um, treatments on site, too. So mm-hmm. a kiddo just gets, has to walk out of their classroom and onto the bus, and they'll get their dental cleaning without their parent having to take them into the dentist. Wow. Do, do you do tooth fairy services, too, in the <laughs> classes? I think that's a really good one to add to the list. I think you should. There should be a grant somewhere for it, given the price of 
tooth fairy payments these days. I haven't yeah. gotten there yet, but I, I'm, I'm a little concerned to, you know, to know that there's probably inflation for tooth fairies from when I was a kid. Actually, there was a segment, I believe, on the Today Show, and I think when Matt Lauer was still on, <laughs> I think he reported that the average tooth fairy payment was uh, above $5 a tooth. And that was, you know, kind of fascinating because my memories don't so that's inflation from when I was a kid, for sure. So, so we got to find a grant. You we and do. I will talk about yeah. this after the program <laughs> for that. Yeah. So um, I think you were mentioning to me that many of the patients uh, don't have transportation to get there. How? What? What? What's that phenomenon like? Sure. So you know, we do have transportation as a barrier for our patients, and so um, for patients that are you know, not able to come in for care, we're able to provide services through Lyft or through taxi services to come in for their appointments. And for the patients that have several barriers to care, you know, maybe it's transportation, maybe there's food insecurity, um, it could be homelessness, or um, maybe they're managing a complex disease, oftentimes they're assigned a case, a case manager. So that's about 10% of our patient population. And that case manager is checking in on that patient um, calling them, making sure that they have a ride to their appointment. If they don't have a ride, setting them up a ride for their appointment. We really do everything we can to make sure that our patients are coming in when they need to be seen. And we want to make sure that they're coming in not just when they're really sick, but also to do their preventative care because that's how we keep them healthy. Right. Yes, that's really important. So, of course, one of the challenges we get to the health center system and the requirement that everybody should be treated is that there are certain segments of the community who feel that the undocumented should not receive medical care from the community and from our mm-hmm. state, etc. How, how, what's that been like at the Petaluma Health Center? Um, well, part of, you know, part of our requirements is that we don't deny access to care. Um, the majority of our patients do have insurance of some sort. You know, we have about 22% pop- population that doesn't. And of that 22% population that doesn't have insurance, they're still paying for their care on a sliding fee schedule based on their income. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you know, for our, what we did, what we have seen in the last couple of years with the change at the federal level and the uncertainty that we have around the undocumented populations, we have less folks coming in for care. Um, not because they've left necessarily, but because there's a lot more anxiety about coming in and seeing a doctor knowing that we are a federally qualified health center. Because of they're, they're undocumented and they're not quite sure what the system will do. Exactly. With the information they give mm-hmm. to the providers. And there. even though it's HIPAA, just like anywhere else, and we don't share our information, we can't share our information, uh-huh. there's just that fear that's there. But we also have offered, you know, inter- immigration classes. And when you look at our numbers, we actually don't, you know, the number of undocumented um, that we serve is not all that large. It, there's a large number of um, Spanish-speaking patients that we have. Um, we have a large number of DACA patients that we see, but um, we're not seeing an influx of undocumented um, patients coming into the health center. Well, I don't. Yeah, certainly yeah. the <laughs> influx uh, into the community is not happening mm-hmm. given the current immigration yes. situation. However, uh, it's sad to hear that they're not willing to come forward. Yeah. Uh, because they're afraid of the of the system. Yes. You know, uh, when many years ago we were involved in a um, community organizing project, and we actually had a room full at St. Vincent's Church mm-hmm. uh, of undocumented, a large segment of the Latino population, many of whom were undocumented, 
came in the room there with the police department mm. and the uh, city council and our mayor was there at that point to talk to them about relations in the community, etc. And the most phenomenal piece for me was that they felt safe coming in. And it's sad to hear that this, given what's happened over the years, uh, that that sense of safety in the community, because, I mean, from just a purely financial point of view, if they're sick and don't get care, the burden's going to fall back on our community, on our society anyway. You so the the head. Mm-hmm. so we, we should be there anyway taking care of them. Uh, add to that the purely human factor of that they're human beings and suffer pain like we all do, and uh, the notion of taking care of people is, should be part and parcel of our society, which the health center is representative of, of this, this care notion. Absolutely. Yeah. And if we have people who aren't coming in to seek care and they are sick, eventually what happens, they end up in our emergency rooms, which is much more costly, a drain on resources. And if we can keep them healthy, I mean, I think that's part of what we as a community need to do is, is take care of each other. Um, I We do still have folks that are undocumented that come in, but just I think there is a general fear given all of the unknowns and the dialogue that has happened at a national level about what, where is it safe for me to go? And even though they have a, tr- you know, a relationship with their provider that is trusted and longstanding, their, their fear is still there. And that's, that's a sad commentary on mm-hmm. our current situation. And it is. I'm glad that the health center is there. And I remember the health center back uh, in the old offices <laughs> on the way to DMV. Yes. It was a clinic at that point, yes. I believe. And it's, it's so... I, I would like to invite people to come and, and see it. I, I know that you expressed the willingness to uh, show them the place and to mm-hmm. have the public learn what this facility is like and that it's really a gem for our community. What's the relationship with uh, the hospital and how does how do patients mm-hmm. get into the hospital? Or do your doctors have privileges yes. that we have a great relationship with the hospital and, and Petaluma Valley Hospital is really important for us um, we our patients if they're having a medical procedure generally it's done at Petaluma Valley Hospital um, we had 337 babies born in 2017 I'm still waiting on the 18 numbers but about 300 of those babies were born at PVH wow. um, and that's the majority of the babies that were born at PVH in that year we uh, really depend on that hospital for, you know, the the more acute care that our patients need. Um, and our doctors do go and round at the hospital on Paloma Health Center patients. And we do get reports every morning from the emergency room of any of our patients that were admitted throughout the night or went and sought emergency room care and were sent home so that their doctor can follow up with them. And it's, it's a very important relationship. Um, you know, we're not, com- we're not competitors. We, we work together very closely. How, how would you rate the technology level of the facility? Um, <coughs> excuse me. Many of the uh, ma- modern medical tech is built in technology, and uh, some people might think that, well, this community health center that only takes care of the mm-hmm. poor, they don't really have the facility there to do really good medicine. Yeah, so I think one of, so one of the first things I want to address is we don't only take care of the poor. Okay. So, yes, 85% of our population is low income, but we also have a lot of patients, you know, that, that other 15% that are seeking care with us that have private insurance. Um, and we also have some patients that have gotten insurance th- 
through, because we do take private insurance for everybody except for Kaiser. And sometimes we have people who really made that relationship with our doctor, and they'll actually stay with us even and pay out of pocket even though they're a Kaiser patient. Uh, technology for us is incredibly important. And when you walk through the health center, it's pretty evident. It, it's, unfortunately, the, one of the first things people used to say to me is, this is so nice. And it really shouldn't, I, I shouldn't expect it not to be nice. Uh, just because of the population we serve. I think that that's really unfortunate that people have that perception in their head before they walk in the building. But we have an entire informatics team that their job is looking at data and looking at, you know, where are we falling behind or where are we excelling? And what is that particular medical team or that doctor doing that they're, you know, maybe their patient population has, they're all caught up in their, on their mammograms or they're all ca- caught up in their colorectal cancer screenings. What are they doing that's a little bit different than everybody else? Or should we try something in a smaller, you know, with one or two doctors to try to get patients, you know, maybe it's getting their, their vaccinations up to date. And let's try it, see if it works, track it. And if it's working, let's roll it out across the entire center. So we have an entire, we have a quality improvement director and we have a chief informatics officer and they have a team and that's really what they do is work on technology. We actually received an award after the wildfires for the use of our electronic medical record system because when Santa Rosa Community Health, they you know lost a clinic in the fires and they were shut down for almost two weeks across their entire system, their patients were able to come in to us. We canceled all of our appointments for those two weeks um, and just took walk-ins and their patients could come in, get their prescriptions filled. We were also able to access their medical records and make sure that they were getting everything that they needed during that time. So, yes, I, I must say walking through the building, it, it is a beautiful facility. Uh, technology is obvious uh, in there and the mm-hmm. use of the technology. Does the health center receive certification from any organization, government? Uh, how does that certification work for the health center? Sure. So we do um, this last year and for uh, not the first time, but we are Joint Commission accredited, which is Joint Commission is a separate body that um, both hospitals and primary health care settings um, go to and ask for accreditation. It's basically, it's the gold standard in health care in terms that's of... Jaco, right? It's, yeah, right. that's okay. exactly what it is. Right. Okay. Um, and they come in and they look at your clinical quality and rank you on it, and mm-hmm. it's, it's challenging certification to get, and it's something that we're incredibly proud of. And that just means that our clinical care is up to speed and, and is exactly where it should be. And then we also um, have received awards from HRSA, which is the federal body that, that governs us, for, and we're a, cl- a clinical quality leader in the country for, for that. We've actually, this last year, we're ranked in the top 10% of, healthcare, of um, health centers in the country. Wow, that's great to hear. Yes. And I, I've worked with Jayco, not with Jayco, but with mm-hmm. people that were involved in the mm-hmm. accreditation process, and it's a very, very challenging and very high standard that is demanded of the facilities, and it's great to hear that there's JCO certification at our health center. Yes. Uh, that part uh, that part is really good. And um, you mentioned also that uh, our health center is, I call it our health center. Yes, it is. Petaluma <laughs> Health Center. It's um, a, a, a teaching facility also. It is. Our chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Nareet Lick, really believes that you're at the top of your game when you're teaching because you need to not only are you, you know, your faculty that has been in healthcare for a long time, but you also 
are keeping up with the latest and greatest. And so this last year, we launched our nurse, our nurse practitioner residency program. And what that means is that we now have six, and I'll say ladies because right now they're all, they're all women, we have six nurse practitioner residents that are learning, you know, they're certified, but they're learning. This is their first year out in clinic practice, and so they're getting um, mentored. They have, they're being preceptored, and they're being able to present all of their cases to, um, you know, somebody who has been practicing um, for a while. And they also get to spend, you know, time doing things like suture clinics where they're stitching up fake dummies and, you know, <laughs> so they're, lear- they're learning, you know, all these things. Because I don't know, you know, that I would want to be somebody's uh, first stitch job if they hadn't had any practice, right? So we're um, we're really excited. Our first, four, the first group of four that started last February are going to be graduating from our program this upcoming February. Uh-huh. Um, and we just had um, three, we have three more that are starting when they graduate. And then it's a rolling program. So we're really, something we're really proud of. That is great. I, yeah, I, I don't think you're looking for volunteers to be, for them to practice stitching. No, on. I don't think so. Okay, okay, <laughs> we, I think we, we let them practice on dummies first. That's because. good. That's good. And is it true that phlebotomists practice on oranges first? I've heard that. I've heard that rumor, too. I don't that. know. I have to check that one out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, you've seen them doing it to oranges? What about lemons yeah. and grapefruits? Why oranges? That's a really good question. <laughs> Go yeah. research that one for me, and we'll, we'll get you back on I can for do a, that. a discourse on that, on that part. Yeah. So I see your, your title is uh, Director of Business Development and Partnership. Yes. So, um, what does that mean? Uh, business development? Does that mean how to get more patients in or partner? What, yeah, what do you, so do I giving do? tours and aside from coming here and doing a wonderful job of sharing the institution of which you are a part, what, what, what does that mean? So, that means it's, it's um, I kind of think of it, my responsibility of being in three big buckets. It's actually not looking for new patients necessarily. Okay. We have an outreach team that is bilingual, bicultural, and spends a lot of time in the community events, um, making sure that people who maybe don't have primary care are, you know, able to come in and get signed up. But my role is around development, so fun development, so that, you know, that van you heard me talk about, um, we still have a little bit more money to raise between about $75,000 to stock that van before it's up and running. So I'm out there right now chatting to folks about, you know, who might want to invest in, in our kids' dental health. Um, I just had our chief operating officer come to me the other day and said, can you find me $50,000 so we could buy a new ultrasound machine? So, <laughs> so um, those are some of the projects that I, you know, I've been working on. I also oversee our marketing, so that's all of our you know, graphics and visuals. Uh-huh. And then in terms of that partnership piece, um, it, you know, when I started, we really didn't have a robust development program. We didn't have uh, a lot of community partners. Um, you know, we, I kept saying we're this best kept secret. So a big part of my job is just letting people know that we're here, and not necessarily people who are using the health center as patients. Maybe they are, but just I want people to come in and see what we're about. I want to break the stigma down that we're this you know community clinic that's only providing care for the poor, and I want people to understand that in our community of sixty thousand people, uh, we are you know we serve a huge population of people that kind of are under the radar. Um, we see between. Petaluma Marina Park, we have 40,000 patients, and if 85% of those are living, 
you know, very close to the edge of, of poverty, what does that mean for our community? Right. And a lot of times the folks that I'm talking to are people who maybe are never going to use the health center for services or are, you know, they've never really experienced some of the challenges that our patients face around food insecurity or housing insecurity. So it's really breaking down those barriers in our community um, between people who haven't been into the health center and then, you know, our patient population. I often say to people that, uh, you know, people will say, uh, are you happy? What do you do? And that health is is everything because without it, people can't really function well in our in their lives and Absolutely. in our community. And so this is one of the basic, 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 basic needs of, of our community and of each individual in our community. And to know that that number of patients are being cared for in this area mm-hmm. is uh, is phenomenal. So when you're, when you're talking about partnerships, what do you mean by partnership? Like partnering with with Petaluma Valley, or what do you mean by partnerships in there? Um, you know, looking at things like partnering, you know, with our schools to do that dental care at school sites. Mm-hmm. Um, partnering with community groups around other programs. Um, you know, it's very, it's pretty fluid, and, and I kind of joke. I'm like, this title, my title is pretty misleading. Around, you know, it was a new role for the health center when I started, and so we're, we're figuring out what that means as we go because we do have a really robust outreach program that already has a lot of partnerships with service providers. But are there other partnerships that we could make with, you know, businesses, with schools? Um, how do we kind of get out of the box of what we're doing and let people know that we exist in different ways that we haven't before? I was thinking with the dental, you said you were 75,000 short. I was wondering if there's a dental association in town that might be willing to help you out in the process. I'm just trying to encourage people out there to Well, I think that's a great idea. (laughs) And I'm like, what, you know, and I haven't haven't, um, sought out any of the dental associations, so I'm going to write that one down. Please do, please do. And there's no charge for the information. I appreciate that. There's no charge for the information. Wow. Well, I I can tell by listening to you that uh, you love what you're doing. I do. I, and I do. It's a great uh, it's great to have you in this position and to know that the health center is here for our community and for the people in our community and trying to take care of not just the poor but the, all all who are in need are welcome to come in. And I join you uh, in encouraging. The, our listeners to stop by there to call in and set an appointment to take a look at the place and get a sense of, uh, of what it's about because it's very important. So thank you very much for being with us uh, this morning. I thank appreciate you. the invitation. Thank you. Yes, so you are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCA LP Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. We'll see you soon in the second segment.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. Welcome back to our second segment, and as I announced earlier, our guests this morning are Faith Ross and Naomi Crawford, a community activist, members of the Coordinating Committee for the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Uh, If I went over each of their resumes of activism, uh, we wouldn't have any time to talk this morning. So welcome to the studio to both of you. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Great to have us. you here. Yeah, so there are a couple of things coming up that we want to talk about this morning. And uh, we're going to start with the more recent issue, which is the event coming up this Saturday, which is the Women's March in Petaluma. And before we get into that, just... Naomi, can you tell me why you're in this activism business? So, what is, <laughs> you are you're so connected with uh, our political con- uh, leaders, with uh, activists in the community to make sure things are different in our world? What, what's that about for you? Well, I don't have a single answer for that. I have a long one or a short one. Well, go ahead. You start, and if, <laughs> if, I, do, if I do this uh, signal to you, you'll uh, know what happens. Okay. I feel like I was definitely born into a politically active family, and I grew up in an intentional community, which I won't discuss because that'll be the whole half-hour okay. segment. But uh, we were socially active, politically active, community-minded, uh, and so I've always had that. But what really um, inspired me to engage more in my own community of Petaluma I think was um, just being surrounded by like-minded people, people who were engaged and were asking interesting questions and sort of prodding me along. And then, of course, with the election of Donald Trump, I had a strong reaction to that and a confusion surrounding it, and I wanted to investigate that for myself and figure out uh, how I can help at the local level, how I could make my community here better and um, where everybody here felt they're part of the uh, the political scene and not left out. Like I had been, I felt like I had been left out when Donald Trump was elected, and I didn't want that happening here. Okay, well that's it's great. And Faith, you've been on this program before, and mm-hmm. so just a little bit about why you're involved in this community stuff. Yeah, well I feel a little the same way. My parents were very active. When I was growing up, you know, I grew up in the South, in Louisiana, back in the, I was uh, 50s and 60s, and so you know how that situation was for for blacks, and yet they were very involved. Uh, And so I grew up that way, and when we moved to Petaluma, I wanted to know what the community was about and what was going on, and having children 
growing up here, too, I wanted to make sure that I understood what their lives would be like. And so, you know, getting involved is a way of being connected. And I, I appreciate that. I lived in Georgia during the 70s, <coughs> and uh, I didn't witness much activism in the black community, at least in the community where I was. And it, it, you are truly an inspiration uh, to me and to many others for the work that you have done in Thank our community you. over the many four decades that you have been uh, involved in four decades plus uh, in Petaluma. So thank you, and thank, thank you, you for being here today. So Naomi, let's let's switch right to the uh, Women's March this Saturday. So tell us a little bit about it, how it got started, uh, what why we should show up on Saturday morning. Well, I'm really excited about it, first of all. Um, so for the last two years, the Women's Marches, um, I think the point of them was to amass as many people a, a, as possible in one location. So there were not that many of them, you know, San Francisco, Oakland, Santa Rosa. And then last year, they spread out a little bit. There was one in Sonoma. And this year, uh, a, a woman who's relatively new to Petaluma said, why isn't there one in Petaluma? And we thought, maybe it's time. Maybe the point of this year should be to have as many as possible, whether 100 people show up in each town or whatever it is, but to show that every single town really cares. And so the woman whose brainchild this was, uh, she approached a group of uh, s some people from Indivisible Petaluma, some people from One Petaluma, some people from the PCRC, and asked, how do we do this? And that was all it took for all of us to just jump on board, volunteer, and get this going, start looking for speakers, get the permits, all that. And it's been quite a ride. It's been quite a ride. So let's get the uh, advertising piece of uh, the time and the place, sure. et cetera, and then we'll go more into what it's about. Sure, absolutely. So it's this Saturday, January 19th. Uh, we're gathering at 11 a.m. in Walnut Park, which is downtown on D Street and, what is that, 4th? 4th and D. And uh, we have, uh, I'm going to say this word wrong, Pakiyotsan dancers on the stage from 11 to 11.20. And then we have uh, an al a lineup of speakers that is diverse and amazing and representative of our entire community of Petaluma. That would be great. And I would also add that B'nai Israel Jewish Center is a co-sponsor uh, of the march. And we are actually having our Sabbath services out at the park at 9.30 on Saturday morning so that people can be there and participate and we can show our, our support for that. What Faith, after all these decades in town, what's it like for you to see this the activism that has happened in these past few years? It has been exciting. I mean, I went to the first Women's March in Santa Rosa and, you know, it was just fantastic. It even started to rain on us and I don't think anybody cared. You know, it was just the ability to be there. And, and, and women and men a lot. It's not just women that are involved in this. It's men's because the issues around these marches affect everybody, not just women. Right, because it's also about diversity, it's inclusiveness, about, exactly. and, and all of those things. And mm -hmm. all of those things. I don't know if you had a chance to see some of the comments in this morning's Argus Courier about they did a poll on are you coming to the march, etc. And most people said yes. Uh, there are 102 responses, if I recall correctly. But there were about 44 that said no and some nasty comments about uh, I'm going to go to a place where there's a men's march. Uh, I'm going to, uh, why do we want to do this? So the usual, 
response in a, in a large community of mm-hmm. differing opinions, etc. Mm-hmm. So what do you hope the march will accomplish for us in Petaluma? What, what's the status of women been like in your experience in Petaluma, and what do you hope this march will accomplish? Well, first of all, I did not see the results of that poll, and I'm surprised by that. I'm surprised by any negativity surrounding this at all, because really the point of it is to bring us all together, and that we are way stronger as a community when we work together, when we support each other. So I'm just kind of surprised and a little disappointed in anybody that wouldn't be here. But at any rate, um, as far as just... um, the outcome. I really do think it's about inspiring each other and this next generation of people to 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 seize their own strength and to see that we can take charge. That um, this last year, a lot of women decided to run for office and were successful in that in ways that they never have been before. And for some reason, none of us believed that we could actually be part of that. And now, I believe that women are looking at it differently, and we need to keep that momentum and keep, uh, you know, letting the younger generation see that we are strong and diverse and powerful. So one of the issues that has faced these marches this year and the past couple of years since its inception on the day after the Trump inauguration was the issue of anti-Semitism, that there were issues in the early days of the march with the National Committee, and it overrode many of the attempts at accomplishment that these marches were meant to uh, promote. So what what position has the local march taken? I know you've dealt with it. Uh, Yeah, I think, well, first of all, the um, organizing committee of this march, there are, um, there's, I think, 14 of us, oh, 19 of us. Uh, three of us are Jewish women, and um, some of our speakers are Jewish women. And I think that we wanted to take a stronger stance, showing that there is strength in having a lot of different voices. And it's okay if we all don't agree all the time. Um, but the fact of the matter is that we can agree on on huge issues that connect us all. I did also want to say that, um, like you said, B'nai Israel is a, a sponsor of this event. This whole community has come out in droves to sponsor this event. I, I think I wrote down we have 39 volunteers helping set up and clean up. That's outside of the organizers. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah, we incredible. have 36 volunteers to marshal the, the march. Like, that's a, a large number of people. Right. Um, let's see, we got uh, five restaurants donating food. We have a DJ donating her time and a sound audio visual engineer donating his time. So I feel like the community at large is really supportive absolutely, of this. Absolutely. And, of course, the national controversy uh, faith was around Louis Farrakhan. And um, what, what's the take on him in, in your community? Uh, what's, yeah. In my community, he does not represent us. He does not speak for us. And his views are not held by Thank you for that. The people in, in, in our community. And I do want to say that uh, Petaluma Blacks for Community Development is also one of the sponsors mm-hmm. for the Women's March mm-hmm. because it's important to us as a, as a community to be involved in what goes on here in, the, uh, in Petaluma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, uh, yeah, I think the notion of uh, diversity and the notion of having our whole community come together to support this. I'm 
I'm writing this uh, article that I'm going to send out to B'nai Israel to try to encourage participants from our community. And I'm recalling many years ago when uh, we began including women in some of the rituals back in the 70s in the congregation I was in. I pushed to get the women included in the rituals, which was generally unheard of in that congregation at that time. And uh, one man came in one day and saw the women up there and uh, participating, and he said, what are they doing there? Uh, women shouldn't be up there. People should. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> right? I've never, well, the good news is I've never forgotten <laughs> that comment. I've never forgotten. It really struck me how deep the issues go and how slowly the time, how much time it takes to undo those kinds of feelings and those kinds of, even if they're only statements, whatever it is. Right. And I think that that really speaks to why representation is so important. Because once you see people doing that, it, be, you, it normalizes. And so then the next girls who see it, it's normal to them. And right. so all sorts of representation is the exact same thing. Right, right. So, um, and I, you know, I just want to say also a lot of the Christian churches and stuff I know in our church, um, the leadership is men still. And so we haven't gotten past that yet, that women have a voice. Although there are a lot of uh, women ministers yet, we still haven't gotten there in some of the Christian churches. Yeah, and it's going to be a while, and this, this march is part of the process. I do believe that human events are evolutionary in the sense that it takes, unfortunately, takes time and sometimes a lot of time to undo cultural and other biases that have been created. And uh, our job is to chip away at that, I believe, as our, our job, and I know you agree yes. with me, yes. is to chip away with that as much as we can in, in our journey in this world. And that, that's what, what's happening here. I think that's the job of community organizers and the right. job of social activists. Right. So before we switch topics to the other, any other comments on the Women's March? Anything else you'd like the community to know? Well, I guess I just want to say that the speakers will speak until 1230, and then there will be a march through town on along the parade route. And um, then we will meet back at Walnut Park for uh, basically a call to action. So there will be um, different groups tabling there. Um, there'll be a DJ playing so that people can dance and have fun. Um, it's it's going to be a really fun event. Uh, is either of you an atmospheric prognosticator? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means. Oh, I know what that means. I know why we use that word. Um, it, it, I assume it's rain or shine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that will be there. And it reminds me, There's a, uh, I used this verse at a wedding once because it was pouring rain during the wedding. And there's a verse in the Bible that says, many waters cannot quench the fires of love. Oh, so um, when we're out there and if this is about loving who we are as human beings, loving our community, and working really hard to make profound connections with each other, then the rain will do what the rain does. Yeah. You know, it will do what the rain does. So I'd like to transition uh, over to an event coming up at the end of the month that's sponsored by the Petaluma Community Relations Council based on a similar theme around inclusivity and bias. And uh, it's going to be, uh, it grew out of a conversation at one of our coordinating committee meetings. So 
Faith, could you address that, of how we got to this event? And, okay. So we were talking about it in one of our uh, meetings, and we were looking at biases. And, you know, I've come to understand that we all have some bias, uh, regardless of what it is. And so we were looking at how do we bring this or how do we address this in the community. And we decided to look at the issues in our schools because last year uh, the Junior Commission on uh, Human Rights did a survey and they found some very uh, appalling things at some of the schools. And so we wanted to address that. Not uh, not totally for the county, but within the schools in Petaluma, and making sure that we understood where we were on those issues. And so the um, the event on the 30th, January 30th, at the Petaluma Library at 6:30, I believe it is 6:30 to 8, around 8 o'clock, is going to focus on our schools, our schools here in Petaluma what the issues are now. We have some students coming in who will talk about how they see it now, what's going on at the school. There's also been a, um, a, a, a survey done, and I think Naomi can talk to that survey a little more than I can because I think she's more familiar with the people who did that. But at any rate, they're going to speak also about their survey. And then the school administration is going to be there. And they're going to be able to let us know what's going on now within our schools. And so this is just a, a part of our, um, a part of the issue on bias. We're going to look at the issues, see where we are, and then what are the next steps that could happen. Right, and this is just an inquiry. It's, it's not an meant inquiry. to be a, exactly. It's, it's not meant to protest the school system or anything like that. It's an attempt to Fact get finding. the facts out to our public. Naomi, can you pick up on that? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to add that our calling it an inquiry, I think, is important just semantics-wise because we really don't want it to be one side against the other, either or. It's really to get everybody in the room to be able to listen to one another and add to the picture so that we as a community can figure out what is really happening from the student's perspective, the teacher's perspective, the administration perspective, and as a community, what can we do to help? Um, at any rate, the, uh, the, the survey was done by Trey Vasquez with the North Bay Organizing Project and the Latinx Club at Casa Grande High School. Could you explain Latinx? Yeah, so Latinx is a combination of Latino and Latina, and so it encompasses the whole community um, without gender specifics. And uh, Trey, the survey that he's done, it's basically come from him and North Bay Organizing Project only, so um, what he's asking is, if the uh, school administration could administer this survey so that we can get numbers from all of the students in the high schools to find out what their experiences are around bias and the uh, question of inclusion or exclusion. Yeah, so what, any examples of what's, of what's happened in the schools? Any anecdotal things that you might have heard or as a parent experience? Well, as a parent, I can't speak to... Um, my, my children are at Cherry Valley... Uh, elementary school, and um, there is has been bias training with the teachers, and the teachers do um, uh, seem to in, be quite inclusive at that school. But I, so I can't speak to all schools. But Trey's findings were that the kids of color, at, especially at Casa Grande High School where he works, 
um, they have felt left out. They have felt like the discipline, disciplinary actions are unfair, that they're targeted more than uh, white, white kids. And um, at this point, this is all anecdotal. And so that's why we wanted to have the, the information come from not just the administration and teachers, but also the police department who have a presence at the high school now to see if this is if this can be backed up one way or another, and if, if the kids are feeling this way, what can we do to help them so that they're not feeling this way? Right, so the police department will also be participating yes. in the program that evening, too, to, because of the community resource officers that are now present uh, at the high school campuses. And there are, have always been community resource officers. The, the program that's in place now is actual Petaluma Police Department officers right. at the right. school. So it's a right. little bit different. Right, right. Um, and when this came up in the uh, in our uh, organizing committee, in our coordinating committee, um, you particularly were passionate about the school issue because? Well, because I joined this community because I want it to be equitable for everybody, and I want all of us to, to get from it the this, this same things. I don't want people with money to get more than people without money or people who are straight to get more than people who are gay. I want it to be equitable. And so for my own kids who are young activists, it's important to them, too, that they fight for people whose needs aren't being met. I think it's, uh, it's telling in our community when we can come together uh, for an issue like this because we tend to take for granted, particularly being in Northern California and uh, its reputation for liberalism, uh, many people think everything's hunky-dory out there, and uh, but we we know that the reality on the ground is a little bit different, and that inclusivity and racial biases, cultural biases, uh, language biases, people who speak with an accent uh, are often taunted in school situ uh, situations, and that it's really important uh, for us uh, to focus on it. So what do you hope is going to come out of that evening uh, of inquiry, any? Well, yeah, I for me, it's a matter of, of listening to the students and hearing what they're saying, and also listening to the administration and hearing, you know, understanding where they are on this and the two sides being able to work. And I'm I'm really hoping that the administration will listen to the students, hear what they're saying, and and take that and and maybe some way bring some of the information back and be able to uh, put into action some of the things that the students are feeling, you know, give some credence to that. I, I, I know that when my kids were in school, we're not hearing, I mean, they've been out of school for over 10 years, 10 or 15 years, and my husband and I are just hearing some of the things that happened to them while they were in school. And I said, why didn't you say something? And my youngest son said, Mom, he said, I know what you would have done. He says, I know you would have gone out to that school. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. <laughs> and I didn't want kids looking at me and having you out at the school. Mm -hmm. So it's my chance now you know, to maybe help another child mm -hmm. not have to go through that same thing, or at least bring the issues up so that people know what's going on. Actually, I, in this discussion, what occurred to me is something we actually didn't talk about uh, in our coordinated committee as we prepared the program, 
was I would challenge this that the starting point is the home. Uh, it, is. it is. And how do we, you know, the, the notion of a, that a child comes to school already with this bias uh, that he or she is just carrying out as a result of what he hears or she at hears home. at home and etc. So that's, the, you know, so in some ways, uh, putting it on the school system to cure the notion of bias uh, is unfair because it's only part of the problem. Yeah, and we're not asking them to cure it. <laughs> we're asking them to address it. Right. And so while a child may come to school with a bias, the administration, the teachers, everybody need to let them know that that's, that's not something that's acceptable. Mm-hmm you know, in the schools and stuff, and they need to rethink those attitudes. But I agree with you, and I agree that um, the question of bias is, it's uh, pernicious. And so it is something we really do need to consider as parents. And um, I I have to consider it with my kids every day when they tell me the story of how how certain kids behaved in school. I, I really have to think critically with them about what they're talking about and, you know, with what is this kid who you're targeting? And because I want them to think critically too about their own biases, what they bring. So it's really a, it's really an important piece uh, of this. And while we can't just say it's all the parents' fault, although that, you know oh. that has something. To, it's, it's it's complicated. It's not just simple. Right. It's not just as simple. And I think uh, asking our schools to set boundaries. Right saying, you may think that way, but when you're in this setting, you can't do it, hoping that that will teach them that ultimately they shouldn't be doing that. And maybe challenging that, too, is how they even think. Right. Like, maybe that is not okay to think that right. way, and maybe right. addressing it policy-wise. Right, yeah. I remember I, I had a congregation in the South, and the Jewish community would use uh, what I consider to be a derogatory term in Yiddish for the black community. And uh, I issued a decree, which you know, <laughs> a decree to the congregation. You can't use that word in the synagogue. You can't. Use, and one man, one one of the biggest contributors, came in and used the word. I said, if you want to use, talk to me. I'll be happy to talk to you about him. But you need to step outside the door because you need to have the sacred space where it's equal, where right. everything is together there. Yeah. Well, we invite the community again on Wednesday night, January 30th, 6.30 p.m. uh, to the Petaluma Library in the community room there to join us in this uh, inquiry into inclusivity and bias in our school system. And uh, any last comments? Are we out of time? Because I I just wanted to add about this evening, this January 30th evening, that what I think a real positive thing that we've uh, set up within it is to break into smaller groups and be able to share stories and really listen to each other. And I think that's really what will affect the broader community, not just the teachers and the students. And that's a very important piece of that, the ability for all of us to be able to hear each other, to listen, and not let what comes inside come out first before we absorb what someone else has told us. Mm -hmm. Thank you to both of you for uh, being with us this morning. And our listeners, I'm sure, are going to appreciate what you've had to say. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCA, LP, Petaluma, California. Mm